All right, everybody, welcome back to the showcast. So I'm looking forward to this particular interview for two reasons. One, uh, I'm going to bring somebody in who hasn't done this podcast with us yet, but we've been trying to get him or we've been talking about getting him on for a while uh, and good reason for him to get him on. Please welcome to the showcast. First off, from our friends over at NerdBase, Chris Mannix. And, <laughs> and bringing him on for a very important reason, which I'm sure we'll get to at one point during the interview. Our interviewee already knows the reason, but we'll make mention of it again. Uh, she's been in films such as uh, Django Unchained, Hateful Eight. You can see her on television. She was part of American Horror Story, um, True Detectives. So many great things. Please welcome to the podcast, Miss Dana Gourier. Dana, thanks for spending some time with us. Well, it's absolutely my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, so, uh, where are you calling us? Are you on West Coast? Are you East Coast? I know you're from, I think you're from New Orleans. Is that where you're calling us from? That's right. I'm born and raised from New Orleans, and I'm actually calling you from Los Angeles, mid Wilshire, to be exact. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah. you, you, I'm sure, do you, are you like a West Coast gal now living out there? I think so, yeah. I think so, yeah. Hmm. I've relocated. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, most people do, I guess, when they get well, well, to some degree. My heart and I actually still do live in New Orleans, but I spend a lot of time. Okay. okay. I guess you could say I'm, I'm bicoastal or yeah. Yeah, tricoastal in some ways because I spend a lot of time in New York, too. Well, I mean, it's, it makes a little sense. I mean, because looking at your IMDb page, you're still relatively new to the industry, aren't you? I mean, you've only been doing it for four or five years, maybe? About five years now, almost six, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And if you look at some of the earliest stuff that you've done too, I mean, you, I mean, you look at Memphis Beat, which is, you know, local to the area that you're from. And I, I'm never sure how, yeah. I'm never sure how to pronounce it, but is it tri Trim? You would know better than me, obviously. It's Treme. Treme. Okay. Which was an yeah. H HBO series, correct? Yeah. About, um, an actual neighborhood in the city of New Orleans that was actually called Treme. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, um, most recently though, we'll, we'll get into this obviously because I think this is the biggest topic to talk about. Uh, Hateful Eight, which is now, I think, still in theaters for the most part, up for a number of Oscar nominations. Uh, not your first bout with Tarantino though. So, um, I have to mm -hmm. imagine it's, you enjoyed working with him the first time in Django. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Um, Django was my first big budget film. And it was my first in a lot of ways as it relates to being a living actor and sort of being a part of such an ensemble and such a big ensemble. Um, I remember when I got my call sheet for the Hateful Eight, um, that very week I had gone, I had run across an old call sheet for Django Unchained. And on the call sheet for Django, I was number 89. And on the call sheet for Hateful Eight, I was number 11 which was, you know, quite a jump. It was um, pretty extraordinary to, like, kind of take it all in as it relates to it coming full circle to some degree. You know, yeah. I'm still very much climbing, and there's a lot more I have to build. And for all intents and purposes, people haven't really seen what I can do as an actor um, and as an artist in general because I'm also a singer. Um, because there aren't a whole lot of opportunities for women of color, and I think that that's the conversation right now, now how they're trying to diversify things, um, which is exciting. It's an exciting time, not just for people of color, but people in general, because there's a tremendous shift happening. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm excited about the prospect and the possibility of what could be next for me as an artist, as a performer, as an actress, um, as a woman, et cetera. But um, Quentin actually wrote the part for me in Hateful, which is, I mean, like, you can't get much more of an opportunity than that. Oh, no, than no, no. Than an extraordinary uh, director, writer, creating a role for you. Um, I'm not sure if that'll happen again in my lifetime, but it has happened, and I'm just super proud of it. I'm super. I'm very, very honored by that. Yeah. Very honored by that. Well, I mean, if you look back at all of Quentin's movies, and and I've seen most of them, if not all of them, because I'm a huge Tarantino fan, uh, he mm-hmm. tends to use a lot of the same people in, in his movies. So if <laughs> if you had the mm-hmm. honor of Quentin writing you a part specifically for this movie, <laughs> I, I'm pretty sure you're in good with Quentin and we'll see you again in I some future so. movies of his. Mm-hmm. The dream wouldn't be Kill Bill 3. Like, I mean, could you imagine? That would like, be amazing. I have, like, daydreams about... I have <laughs> about having to train for some reason and like get into this <laughs> crazy shape and then like learning how to wield you know um uh, uh guns and knives and sword play <laughs> and like you know what i mean samurai sword like the whole nine i just i think of that when i'm on the treadmill trying to work towards something <laughs> uh dana <laughs> Do you have do you have any specific genre of film that you'd really like to like sort of veer into over time? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I, I would say the ten year goal is, and maybe even you know five year goal is to write, direct, and produce my own work, um, and that story for me would be at least right now in my life, and it has been for some years. The goal in that story would be um, uh, would be to explore fifties, late fifties, early sixties music. Um, ah. uh, look at what, like the sort of in-depth look of what singers and what talented people did back then, how they functioned, what they did, how they lived. Uh, what they ate, slept, like everything, how, how they function in life and what the artist's life was back then. To be more specific, um, I have a true love for Etta James. She's who taught me her thing. And I have a special respect for Etta, Etta Fitz, uh, Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday. Uh, and so those, hey, those hey. women, those, those icons. Go ahead, dear. I'm sorry. I'm just saying, if there's anybody out there that doesn't love Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday, I th- think it's safe to say those yeah. people aren't to be trusted. <laughs> Something's wrong with them. Something's wrong with Indeed. them. Indeed. No, and I just think it was a special time, and I think that people loved each other differently. And I would want to go on an exploration of looking at those relationships and also looking at what it was like to be an artist then. Um, and how hard it was and what the plight was, uh, what the, what the plight was about and what the journey was about. Um, that's something I'm really, really, really interested in. Um, and I have some concepts and also like something I'm really interested in, honestly, Kristen Ben is, um, um, a look at what it means to be a curvy woman in 2016. Uh, <laughs> And what that means to represent that. Because I think we are misrepresented grossly. Um, 
kind of think we are the underdogs in a lot of ways. Um, we're beautiful, sexy women, and oftentimes that is not is what is represented in film and television. Um, it's certain stereotypes and certain archetypes that um, sort of have been married to by studios and even writers. Like, I, I, I just, I want for something different. Um, and even in the casting world, I want to see someone who looks like me. I want to be represented, and, and I want little girls to see me and feel like they're being represented. And I'm not talking about a certain color. Um, I'm not even, I don't even have to be talking about a certain look. I just feel like that I want to represent, uh, and not even a certain sex. I'm sure there are plenty of men that identify with me also. Um, just on the, on the, on the, um, on the level of feeling like someone different, uh, the odd duckling, someone who's just the oddball out or who is, who never sees themselves on these screens or on these stages, yeah. you know? I feel like that's my responsibility personally. Yeah. No, I think there's, there's a, things, I, I think, yeah. I think, I think something like that is something to, would be something to take a lot of pride into too. I mean, cause you're right. I mean, it, you see certain type of, you know, characters, you know, like that kind of, kind of, I guess, bottlenecked into certain kinds of roles and they never really get, mm -hmm. get around that. I mean, a lot of times they're, they're secondary characters or they're comedic characters and, and, yeah. and things like that. So, I mean, yeah, I think that, I think that's an outstanding thing to strive for. And I know I'm a huge fan of film. I've been a huge fan of film for a while, as I know Chris has as well. And, <laughs> I, I know for a fact I wouldn't mind seeing something like that as well. Well, the, right. the, th the, th the thing with guys is that we kind of did have that for a little bit in the 70s. You watch those old mm -hmm. cop movies like Mitchell where, you know, Joe mm -hmm. Don Baker was a hard as nails cop with a beer belly like a cadaver. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that back in the seventies, that was sexy, you know, like the big hairy chest mm -hmm. and black and maybe mm -hmm. uh, probably smelled like stale beer and you know. Um, right, there's this new trend. Um, they're calling it the dad bod. Yeah, it's sort that. of faux pas. But can I keep it real? I find some of these examples of the dad bod kind of hot. Like I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I like it. Yes, you know what I mean. I think, look, I just think it's whatever you like. Like, all bodies are different. Like, sure, you love the cut-up, muscly, you know, out-the-gym guy. You can't not look at that guy. He puts too much work in for you not to look at him. He's attractive. He's, he, you know, he's a good-looking guy. But I also like your guys that are, for me, like, I noticed, like, and I don't know where we're going to this conversation, but let me just say this last little <laughs> thing. Let me just say this last little thing. I think that it's an energy thing, and I think that it's a confidence thing, and I don't think that it's, I think that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what you look like um, to the public or to the masses. I think if there's that one person that you matter the most to and your confidence like, is just readable to everyone, I think that's what's important. I think having your head on straight and having, you know what I mean, what you're about intact and what your sort of, um, what your foundation is and what are your moral compass points. I think knowing those things or what is most attractive about a person. Yeah. Dana, I'm, I'm going to say this and I'm being straightforward. If more women thought like you, this world would be a better damn place. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> And, Thank you, darling. And, Thank you. And more guys like me and other people. I'm not gonna. I don't want to yeah. lump. I don't want to lump Chris into it because I don't want to feel like I'm insulting him <laughs> if I do it. But, yeah. 
no, more, no, it's fine. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a lumberjack of a man. Yeah, more guys like us. We would have a better shot. We wouldn't have to work as hard. That's so fine. Thank you, Val, and I appreciate you saying that. Thank um, you. Getting, um, but I mean, you, you, you mentioned the whole music thing. And I mean, personally, mm-hmm. I was a musician in high school, a musician in college. Mm-hmm. And I mean, from where, oh, wow. where you're from, from New Orleans, I mean, there's so much culture and there's so much music mm-hmm. that comes mm-hmm. from that area. Um, that stems out into other genres of music. I mean, I think something like that, like I know there's recently a trailer that just came out for, um, I don't know if you saw it, Don Cheadle playing Miles Davis. Oh my God. I and, cannot. Wait. Yeah, I mean, it, like, I, I literally can't wait. Yeah, I, I would love to. I heard about this a while ago, and we're finally seeing the trailer for it now. And I was a horn player when I, growing up, so. Um, oh, I was going to ask you what instrument, or were you a vocalist? Like, what did you do? Yeah, I was. A, I was. Um, you played trumpet. I was a horn player. I was a trumpet player. All so, right. My not, dad was a saxophone player, and we're both piano players. So I definitely feel you. Like the music runs in the blood, and also Don Cheadle is. Um, uh, uh, I, I'm a big supporter of him and folks like Ed Harris also because they're alums. Like they went, we all went through the same theater department at um, Cal California Institute of the Arts. So okay. those are um, fellow alums of mine. So I'm always like interested in supporting all my alum works. And and I also met Don once, and he was really awesome. He was just a rock star of a guy. He was cool, he was real cool. So I'm excited to see. Um, not only his work, but also the film in general. From what I understand, he had a lot of um, a lot of input on the project as a whole. So I'm very excited to see it. Yeah, yeah, I am too. Absolutely. And and to see another project, yeah. if, if you were to do it, you know, years down the road, you know, focusing on music and stuff like that. Like I love seeing films like that. Like. I mean, yeah, I, those biopics, right? Yeah, I mean, those I know it, it's a little awesome, bit of a different, yeah. it's a little bit of a different tone from you know, like the New Orleans culture and and, and such. But I mean, I don't sure. know if, if you saw the movie Whiplash, which was. I know. I mean, I not only did I see it, I I saw it, and when I was leaving the theater, because going to the movies is still one of my literally, it's been since I was a child. It's one of my favorite things to do, but not just like, not just about seeing the film. It's the whole process of purchasing a ticket and then going to the counter to get your popcorn and your drink and your et cetera. And maybe if you're early, you play the, the you know, uh, basketball thing or the uh, skeet ball machine thing or whatever. Yeah. Um, you play some of the games and you get like a funky little prize. Like the whole process of theater going is so fun to me. Um, uh, movie theaters and also like, you know, stage plays and everything. Like it's just the experience. Um, and when I went to see Whiplash after I left, I immediately downloaded the um, soundtrack immediately. And then I went home and I had it as a screener, I believe, or a, a fellow colleague sent it to me. I had already had it, but I went to see the theater because I wanted them to have my dollar. And then uh, I saw it. I made my parents sit there and watch it. Or it might have been some weeks later and it had just come out on um, at Redbox rental or mm. some kind of thing I got it in my possession. And I was like, parents sit down and watch this. And we sat down as a family and we watched that film and it was so phenomenal to the point where we rewound the end, those last 15 minutes and watched them all over again. Cause it was just that remarkable. And in fact, it's so funny you should bring that up because I spoke with a producer friend of mine cause I did write 
I wrote a short based on the full length feature that I would like to um, that I would like to do based on a blues singer, a woman, a female blues singer. And my producer friend was saying you should do like what they did with Whiplash. Whiplash came about and obtained the money that it that it obtained from them shooting a short. They shot the short of that first or second classroom scene, and they only shot that. And they had the script written, and based on the short getting pushed around and passed around, the film got made. Um, and now, you know, look at all the accolades later, you know. So Miles Keller is fantastic, and I forget the, the gentleman who won all of the awards. Oh, my God, I can't believe J.K. J. J. Simmons? Yeah, he was unbelievable. You know, what a remarkable movie and what a way to go about getting you know, what a great way to get film made. It's not just about the big conglomerates and these big studios. I think the indie world and particularly television and episodics are going into a very new direction. Yeah. But at the same time, like my heart still lives in the theater. Like like I said before, I love the movie going experience. And I hope that it does not become obsolete. I hope it's something that we can keep, you know, going. Um, as a generation of people. Like I don't want it to go anywhere. Yeah. Well I mean there's something you- Oh God guys. <laughs> Sorry. On two quick notes, uh, one I'm gonna wrap up the the, the music and all that. Uh, if you like, there's a documentary called "A Band Called Death." Have you heard of it? Mm. I want to say okay. I have, but I, I'm not seen it. No. Yeah. It's a really fascinating documentary. Uh, documentary. It was uh, about a band from Detroit in like the late '60s, early '70s. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a group of brothers who started mm-hmm. what was effectively at the height of Motown the first like punk band mm. and these it's a really it's kind of a sad heartbreaking uh, movie and it's a true story about mm. how these guys they love the music they played as a family and the heart was mm-hmm. in it and it was the music that they made was amazing but just mm. the industry sort of killed them it wasn't so ready speak. for them yeah mm-hmm. right and these these tapes of their music just mm-hmm. sat in an attic for 30 40 years until mm-hmm. very recently was rediscovered um, so mm. if you really want to see a wild documentary, uh, I really highly recommend that. I would, I would love to, was the band people of color or were they Caucasian folks or? They, they were, uh, they were people of color. Yeah. They were black. And folks. that's so what kind of. That is, yeah, that's the, to me, that makes all the sense in the world in the sense that Motown on its own back in the day was having its own struggle with the traditional sort of sound that they had, which, by the way, let's keep it real, is classic and bar none and oh, will yes. never be replicated. Motown can't be compared to any anything or anyone. Barry Gordy, um, Quincy Jones coming out of that, like all these brilliant musicians, groups, and the music that we have today has all been influenced by that. So let's just put that disclaimer out there. <laughs> However, the, that specific sound from Motown struggled on its own. So I can only imagine like a group of black, of, of a black punk rock band, like how, or, or even just setting a trend in that way. And who knows, who knows how far advanced they were, how, how from a different time, how much from a different time they were, and what they could have accomplished. But because the sign of the times would not dictate support for them, that makes all the sense to me. I absolutely want to see the the documentary, yeah, people, and even if it was a band of a band of color, people weren't ready for that sound yet. They just weren't ready. For no, it. not that. Sound, <laughs> no, you know? not. Yeah. yeah. No. Um, on another hand, uh, 
with mm-hmm. Hateful Eight, you mentioned be keeping, you know, your your heart in the theater. The Hateful mm-hmm. Eight could so easily translate to stage. It's amazing. Yeah. That yeah, was well, what that mm-hmm. Yeah, that was what mm-hmm. really fascinated me about it. it was just it was a, I was watching a play filmed as a mm-hmm. as a movie. Mm-hmm. Um, he has even been quoted saying that he's going to eventually turn it into a play. I mean, it reads like a play. It read to me when I read the script. It read like a play. And when you watch it on film, it's so extraordinary because so much action happens in that small in that small room. And I don't think I'm giving anything away. I think I've no. been put out there to understand. Um, it does. It feels like a play. It moves like a play. It tastes like a play. Um, it looks like a play. Um, and I, I, looking back at my experience now, I, it's just, what an extraordinary thing to be a part of, you know? I mean, our team, all of them, everyone across the board, they're just some of the best in the business at what they do. And our set design, our scenic design, like production design, everything was just incredible. Um, it even looked like you were on a stage when we were there in both Telluride and on, um, and, uh, at the studios at Red, uh, over on Coina here in Los Angeles. Um, what they built and created looked like a stage. Like it looked like we could set up chairs and open one end of the space and put on a play. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty extraordinary. And you mentioned the set design and everything else. I mean, when you, when you sit and you watch that movie, it, it, it kind of shines on the brilliance of Quentin that it's uh, every single piece of that set that you see has a part in that film one way or another. Yeah. You know, from, and, the, and from the chairs to the fireplace mm-hmm. to the jars of jelly beans, like everything, everything has mm-hmm. a spot in that film and it's, it's brilliant. Mm hmm. And even the things that uh, we as the um, characters don't readily use or immediately use, it, it, it's still there in the background for a specific reason. Like even down to the red apple tobacco in the corner behind Jimmy and Bashir's character when mm-hmm. he's smoking during one of the movements when um, there's voiceover work done by Quentin. Um, I mean, you name it. Like uh, everything was just so specific um yohai tanada it was our production designer and he's just a genius i mean uh art direction was done by richard johnson and benjamin albert like these were just just incredible like artists that uh had the concepts and the ideas and you know quentin goes to these folks and he brings them an idea and a vision and they just literally bring it to life um Everyone, I'll never forget um, my boy Danny. Uh, I would go around. So whenever I go, um, whenever I walk onto a set, either for the first time or it could be every day, but particularly for the first time, I have this thing where I want to touch and feel everything. I want to feel the textures of where I would live, dwell, work, function, mm-hmm. whatever space that is, wherever my character would live and function, breathe, breathe, eat, sleep. I want to feel the texture. So I dug my hands in this big barrel of grain. I dug my hands in the coffee grind. 
um, dug my or the coffee beans rather. I'd touch everything, and there'd be this guy, this set decorated. <laughs> I would literally just follow me. <laughs> he just followed me around the whole time, and I knew he was so perturbed, really. But he's my boy. We worked together on a uh, Django. And he was just like, okay, Dana, come on. Like, okay. <laughs> he wouldn't rush me, but he knew, he didn't even talk to me. He just knew what I was going to do. And I would go and I would touch everything I could from the chains hanging from the beam to, like, horse food, hooves, to wool, literal, authentic, real sheep's wool in the corner, to blankets that were folded, to candles. And I would just go around and touch everything. He just followed me and put it all back in the place. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave it in, in like disarray, but, and I would try to put it, but he knew exactly how it was supposed to be. And so he was just like, just let me know when you're going to go on your journey and I'll just come with you. It was like, cause I just like to touch the things. I want to like, I want to feel it in my hand. I want to smell like this jar of jelly beans. I want to like, you know, I might even want to taste one. I just don't want to see what this feels like. I want this butcher's knife in my hand that I'm going to use to cut up this chicken. You know, I want to feel this stuff. I want to be in it. Yeah. I want to, y'all built this for us. I want to use it. I want to be in it, you know? And just the fact that the so, sets are that detailed. I mean, that there's, you know, you're, you're uh, putting your hands through actual yeah. grain, through actual coffee beans. And mm-hmm. I mean, it, they make these things so realistic now. And it's one of the things that it's one of the reasons why people get so engrossed when they watch movies like this is, the element yeah. of realism to them. Mm-hmm. And so. what's incredible is like that element of realism. I don't think voyeurs have any concept. I don't think that the audience, which is our final element, that it could be nothing without them. But I really don't think they have any concept as to how much work goes into it. Like the amount of detail. I think the folks that are in the game and get the... The, the aspects of these things that are in the industry, they understand and they know. The peers understand. But I think our, our audiences, who we do this for, who we love so much, I really still don't think... It's like my parents. This is a perfect example. My parents will see a film that I'm in. It could be a Tarantino film. It could be a Lifetime movie. Not that I'm making comparisons or anything like that, but I'm just saying it could run from one um, genre to another. And they'll, they'll respond the same way. You did a good job, honey. Yeah, you know, it's good. <laughs> I saw you. Oh, okay. All right. I saw you. Good job. Yeah, no, did you see? She was on a Lifetime movie. No, did you see? She was in that Tarantino movie. And it's like, to them, it's like they're super proud and they, they love it because it's their daughter and they're going to support. But the, the truth is, God bless them. I love them to death. They don't really have any concept as to the amount of detail. But I have to say in their defense, over the years since I've started this, you know, which has been since I was a kid, but professionally for the last five, six years, they've grown, they've grown with me. I mean, I didn't even know what detail went into it in the beginning. The amount of work people put in um, behind the scenes, our crews, it's just remarkable. They work way longer hours for way less pay, and it's just incredible what they create for us to be in there to make it a little bit real for us or make it real for them. Yeah. You know? That's why I just want to slap actors when they're complaining or they're like, my trailer is too small. It's like, shut up. Like, are you crazy? (laughs) You know? And I I get like that too. Sometimes it's hard work and you want to sort of be, you want to feel yourself grow too. So it's like, look, I paid this to you. I don't want to be in a honey wagon anymore. I think I'll earn the triple banger. You know, I get that, uh, but I, I don't understand the sort of lack of respect 
you got, I mean, you got to love what we do. This is crazy. Yeah. Just, right. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. I know we're we're running a little short on time with you. I mean, we're already over what we had originally planned, but uh, you know we're we're having a good time. Oh my time. god, I talk so much, don't I? No, I it's it's so it's absolutely <laughs> fine. Trust me, we love we love it when that happens. Right. I, I before I'm sorry, Ben. Before we let her go, I just because we we maybe have spoke about this a little before. I just want to know who your favorite character in Hateful Eight was. <laughs> just out of curiosity. <laughs> Oh my God, do you know I've done about, I don't know, 30 interviews and no one has asked, probably more, and no one has asked me that question. Well, I think we know why Chris, I think we know why Chris wants to know. I was just curious. (laughs) I I love Chris Mannix, but the reason why I love Chris Well, thank you very much. I love Walt and Goggins, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Walt and Goggins is such a beautiful, wonderful human being, and I just love him so much. And Sam Jackson, I can't even you know, talk enough about him. Um, but those are the people. That's not necessarily the characters. Can I keep it all the way real with you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to sound so sick and twisted. <laughs> I love Daisy Donagoo. I love her. She... And I think, the re- I think the reason why I love her is because she does not care. She will cut you. No. She and- will go to any length in our respect. That about her, I just really do. And Jennifer, Jennifer Jason Lee did such a fantastic job of she portraying is that character. And let me tell you something: the sweetest lady you ever want to meet. She's so <laughs> kind to me. That's my girl. Yeah, that's usually well, like the person. that's usually the weirdest thing of when it happens. It's the people you know that mm-hmm. play the most evil characters or the most despicable characters mm-hmm. are the nicest people in real life. So fantastic. She was great. She was really. I can't. You know. I can't say enough nice things about her at least you know that that was my experience with her she was fantastic and daisy damagoo was just such a badass to me she was so what a what an interesting role what an interest and the way he has all these women written like what interesting characters they're like for for example you got daisy damagoo who's like basically pretty much the leader of a gang yeah you know what i mean um, more or less, or at least a member, you know what I mean? Like, or I don't want to give away too much. I don't know if that was way too much. Of we may have to cut that out or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. But the point I'm driving at is Daisy Dahmer is this sort of leader of a woman so much so, and she's so independent that there's a $10,000 bounty on her head. I mean, come on. You can't get any more boss than that. Yeah. And then you got Six Horse Judy, who's a woman in the middle of the Midwest, you know, running her own Six Horse team. Like, that's unheard of. And then you have Minnie Mink, a woman of color who literally is the proprietor of her own place of business. Her own, she owns her own property and her own place of business. And she calls the shots. These, these women, these very strong, independent, and powerful women are unheard of. And the way he's written them is just uh, incredible to me. Yeah. So I have a special place in my heart for Daisy Damagoo because, like I said before, she's a badass. And I want to say, respect, I respect her resolve as the, as the Confederate uh, says. I respect his, I respect her resolve. Yeah. And, and I want to say too. I mean, it, it, you know, the part you 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 mentioned Minnie, which is the part that you play in Hateful Eight, which mm-hmm. she she's mm-hmm. a very large um, role in the film, even though you're not really in the film as much in a whole as a whole. But I have mm-hmm. I have to say right. 
I don't want to mention the person that you have the interaction with because I don't want to spoil anything. Um, but the interaction <laughs> that you have with that character, I absolutely loved. It made me chuckle the whole time. Oh, oh yes. <laughs> thank you. So, is it I was so worried too? Because <laughs> because that person, I, I'll, um, Chris knows who it is too, and it's um. I've really come around on that person. I don't want to say that person's name again because I don't want to spoil anything. But I've I've come around on that person so much, and I like again. I just loved that interaction between the two of you. I thought it was great. Let me tell you, the individual of which you speak <laughs> is um, a remarkable, and I don't say this in exaggeration, or and I certainly don't say it mildly. He's a remarkable human being wonderful person like i mean i remember texting him after our los angeles premiere like the next day because we had had pictures taken or whatever like with our phones and we were trading them off or whatever and i remember texting him saying i'm just so happy it was you and i'm just so proud of us and i just couldn't have done it without you and that's actually the truth he made me feel so comfortable so welcome so warm it was like he was my cousin. In fact, I think I texted him that thing. I think we might have been cousins in another like, why don't we be cousins in this one too? Yeah. And so we, we decided we were gonna be cousins. That's good. So, that's so nice. It's so great. He's uh, a wonderful, wonderful person. Wonderful person. If you look at the people, I mean, you look back at some of the people, I mean, again, you've done, been doing this professionally for only about five years, but you look at some of the people mm-hmm. that you've worked with, uh, mm-hmm. Jamie Foxx, Christoph Waltz, Samuel Jackson, mm-hmm. you know, Michael Madsen, Bruce Stern, like all these people that are in this and, mm-hmm. and including Tarantino now, you know, as the writer and director, is it almost surreal to you that you've gotten to work with this many people at this point? Yeah, let me let me tell you a quick story. Um, yeah, it's it's just, and it's not even just. Oh my, I'm sorry, it's making me lose my words because it's just so incredible. Like Oprah Winfrey, Lenny Kravitz, Forrest <laughs> uh, Whitaker, like Angela Bassett, uh, and, uh, Jessica Lange. Oh my God, Jessica Lange. Like I I I don't understand how a person this new in their career has worked with the caliber of actors that I've worked with. Um, and I'm not going to lie to you. I question myself and my ability every day. I think that's what keeps me driven and what, what keeps me like wanting, wanting to be better and wanting to learn more. Because look at the company that I've kept. Like it's just remarkable. Mm-hmm. Um, and trying to sort of keep up with them. Like I'm really a firm believer that you are as good as your counterpart. And I feel the difference. I feel the difference when I'm with someone who is less seasoned versus people that are. And it makes you up your game. Like all you ever want to do around folks like that that have been in it and been at it for so long and that have done the level that you're on tenfold and then graduated. You know, it's just all you want to do is take as much respect and like uh, endeavor to to be uh even remotely as good as them in the scene or in whatever moment that you all are doing, whatever moment that is happening. But I'll never forget it was Django, the only person in my entire career that I've ever gotten starstruck by. Because I met Sam and Jamie and Kristoff and all these folks on Django and all these other projects too. This is actually still true to this day. I've met plenty of remarkable actors, but the only person that I've ever gotten completely 
dumbfounded, starstruck over was Leonardo DiCaprio. Oh. And when I met Leo, we were on the porch of Candyland. And I went to introduce myself, and I said, hi, my name is, and I forgot my name. <laughs> I legit, I stopped speaking. And someone else picked up my slack and said something to him, and we glazed over because a couple of people were talking to him at the time. And I literally had to walk away and straighten myself up and just kind of take a deep breath. And I saw him over at Crafty, and, of course, there were, like, two people around him because there's always people around folks like that. And uh, I walked right up. Actually, there was only one person, and a lot of times, actually, as the project progressed, there was no one around him. Like, people, like, left him alone, or he just kind of did his own thing, you know? He's real, Leo's real chill, real down earth. Yeah. Real, real cool. Very, very focused, very, very in, very about his business. But he's, he's very, he's wonderful to work with. Um, I went over to him. He was that crafty. I went over to him, and I just said, hi. My name is Dana Gurrier. I'm so incredibly honored to be able to work with you. And that's all I wanted to say. And he was like, what are you so sweet? And I was like, Thanks. And then he's just like, okay, well, thank you, darling. Because he was speaking and he was working his dialect for the fire. And he rubbed my shoulder. He took me by the shoulder. He was like, that's so sweet. And he was like, okay, I'm moving on now. I don't want to do too much. And then he said to me, he said, cool. You're going to prepare Hildy for Dr. Show, aren't you? And I whipped around in my costume and I answered him right back in character and I said, yes, I am. <laughs> and it was just like a defining moment between the two of us that would turn into like, literally, we acted so silly sometimes. We got to be so close and so cool, like to the point where I was in trouble because he was throwing things across the kitchen at me while Quentin was trying to direct us. And then he'd be like, it was her. And I'd be like, don't say that because they don't fire me. They don't fire her. You know what I mean? So it was like, you know, even trading off, like, uh, just, just chit chat. And like, he would, I would come to work one day and he'd be like, honey, I heard you in there yesterday. You were fantastic. And I was like, really? Really? Leonardo DiCaprio? Really? Like, it's just, it was just too surreal. That was, Incredible, and I just have such a huge love for him. And I'll never forget when we went to the New York premiere. He had about thirty people around him. This is when they were going to introduce us all and introduce us to the New York press. And he, um, he had like literally like thirty people around him. And I saw him. I was off to the side, and I said, "There he is!" And he stopped. He looked, and he stopped the whole thirty people. And he walked over to me, gave me the biggest hug, and he says, I'm so, so happy to see you. How are you? And I'm like, I'm good. I'm so happy to see you. And then we walked together to the entrance place of where Quentin introduced each one of us to go up and, like, you know, kind of, like, be received by the audience. And it was just like that, like that moment where it didn't, it wasn't just about set and it wasn't just about work. It transcended after. Like, he didn't have to do that. Um, and he did because that's the kind of person that he is. That's my experience with him. And I just, I'm not going to lie to you, I hope he, I hope he wins um, the Oscar this year. It's long, long, long overdue. Yeah, um, Because I agree. he was absolutely brilliant. He was absolutely undeniable in The Revenant. I've never seen in my life a performance like that. Ever. I've never seen someone work that hard. Because they went through it. Everything you saw, they went through. So, because uh, one of our producers, um, James Scotchpool, which was one of our producers from Django Unchanged, was the producer on The Revenant. So he had worked with Leo before. 
And I know, I just know everything that, um, oh my God, why am I blanking? Alejandro, not Alejandro, Alejandro. Yeah, I, it's, um, I forget the director's name, so disrespectful, I feel bad. But you know who I'm talking about. I do, yeah. Yeah, yeah you know who I'm speaking of. Um, the gentleman who, uh, you know, led the helm, uh, was at the helm. Um, you know he made them go through it. It's just a no-brainer. And I, uh, I'm just excited for him. I hope that he wins. Yeah. I truly, truly do. With all my heart, he deserves it like no one else. Well, I mean, yeah. you know, the the caliber of people that you've worked with, I mean, in the short amount of time that you've had a career, it's... I'm sure it's to be said for your talent and of course your personality. I love your personality. You're so much, you're so great to talk to. I love it. So thank you, darling. I appreciate that. You guys call me anytime. I'll come on your show anytime, no matter what. That'd be be fantastic. (laughs) What, anything we can look forward to in the future that you got coming up? Yes, I, I, yes, there's, um, midnight special coming out soon. That's a Jeff Nichols project. Sorry, I'm sorry. Jeff Nichols Project, um, sorry, Michael Shannon and Joel Edison, um, and a young man whose name I cannot remember, but he was in St. Vincent. He was the young, the, the, the young boy in, in St. Vincent with Bill Murray. Uh, um, another movie that I, I love. His name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Melissa Joel? McCarthy, who's my idol. I love her. Um, but the young man is brilliant in the film and, um, Midnight Special's on its way out. No, 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 not Joel Edgerton. Joel Edgerton plays, um, either the father or the, the brother. Um, but, but, uh, the young man whose name I can't remember. Um, Jaden Laborer? Yeah, that's it. That's it. That's it. I'm, that's I'm very it. into that's this him. movie. I, I'm, I, it looks like a really awesome, like, sort of like creepy type of movie. I, I saw the trailers. A, yeah. Yeah. Jaden is special though. He, I've never in, in my, the entirety of my career thus far worked with someone so professional. He was so on point. His kid was like, and at the time I think he was like maybe eight. He might have been 10. You know, fantastic. Also, Adam Driver's in it. Um, I'm excited for it to be released. Also, Kidnap with Halle Berry will come out soon. Um, and then I just finished a project called Heart Baby, an indie film. Um, Written and directed by Angela Shelton, which I'm just so honored to have been a part of. What a great, um, what a great love story. It's a brilliant piece. Uh, she's worked on it for five years and it's essentially about a boxer in the prison system who's mm-hmm. so very good that he's, he's offered a shot to represent America in the Olympics and in exchange he'll get a reduced, if not white, clean prison sentence. Oh wow. Um, but he chooses not to take it. And the story is surrounded by those reasons. Um, great cast, um, fantastic crew. I had a blast. And then I got to shoot it in my hometown. We were in New Orleans. I was there for three weeks on location. That was a, that was so much fun. It was really cool. And then it kind of segued right into Mardi Gras because it's Mardi Gras season right now. So uh-huh. I got to catch a few parades <laughs> and catch some beads and do my thing. Yeah. So. That's something I would love to do too. I'd love to go to Mardi Gras at least once in my life. You must. You have to. It's like a mathematical certainty that you need to go. Like for real. <laughs> you gotta go. Actually, and let me know if you go. We'll all go together. There you go. I, I just <laughs> recently um, uh, talked to a fella in Alabama and I did not uh-huh. know this until recently that Mardi Gras actually started there. 
and then slowly moved to New Orleans. That is not true. I'm not expecting that for true. Absolutely not. No, I, I, I looked up. There's some small truth to it. <laughs> no, no, I don't want it. No, say anything. No way. Fair enough. Alabama. Fair enough. Oh, Mobile, God. Alabama. I'm yep. kidding. I'm kidding. I'm <laughs> <laughs> oh, kidding. Well, it's such a pleasure to chat with you guys. Yeah, what a and- fun interview. I had a blast with y'all. We had an absolute blast with you, Dana. We're absolutely going to watch your career. And I'm sure we have not yeah. seen the last of you in the in the slightest. <laughs> I hope so. I hope it's just the beginning. And I definitely, we definitely want to thank you for joining us on this. This was this was a great time. Thank you, darling. Y'all take care. Uh, all right, uh, Chris. Thanks again for joining us on this too. Absolutely, anytime, and, buddy. And, you we'll know have, that. and we'll have you back. But for right now, we're going to take another break, and we'll be back with the showcast right after this.